Welcome to So Sorry for Your Loss. This is not your average grief group. I'm Gianna DiMedio. Thanks for joining me as we normalize the conversation around grief with the stories of those who've gone through it, a whole lot of humor, and a pinch of celebrity and entertainment news. Because fun fact, they grieve too. There's more to grief than that godforsaken dove flying over a willow tree on a sympathy card. I know you've seen it and know what I mean. Let's change the way society looks at it. Visit ssfylpodcast.com for more. Hey, welcome back. Getting into the end of February, which is crazy time, just keeps rolling on. If you're fresh in your grief, I know how painful that can be. That Like this mindset of that time keeps going and it's further and further away from your person. I remember feeling that way. I am in this like peaceful part of my grief, I guess. January, February, and March are always good points for me. There's no anniversaries. There's no birthdays. There's no big holidays or anything like that. You know, fall is very big with football. Summer was always just a big time for my dad and I to be together. And his birthday's in April. His death anniversary is in May. These three months are are like my grief no man's land. <laughs> Nothing really is happening on the calendar that is super triggering. So if I seem like I have a little extra pep in my step, that is why. Today, we're going to be talking about finding your grief tribe. Why is that important? Okay. You have your friends and your family, right? And you might be saying to me like, Gianna, I have enough people. I have enough people in my circle that can fully support me in grief. Sure, but let me tell you how much better it is having a grief tribe. Having people that understand exactly what it is like to lose someone, whether it's a parent, a sibling, a best friend, a spouse. I mean, having people that understand that exact pain point is so big. Today we're talking with Carla Fernandez. She and a colleague, Lennon Flowers, how beautiful is that name, by the way, started the dinner party. You've heard me talk about this before. I'm obsessed with this organization. It really helped me a ton, not only in my own personal grief, but to be able to go to others and say, "Uh oh, welcome to the grief club. Here's something that you can do. Get get started in this. Find your grief tribe. There's just something different about walking into a room of your best friends and walking into a room of people that actually understand exactly what it feels like to be coming up on that death anniversary, exactly what it feels like to be coming up on a certain holiday. There's, you know, I don't, and I don't want to spill too much of what we talk about in the interview, but I say with Carla that like the energy that is taken out of having to explain those things is so valuable in a time when you have no energy left. So while you may have a huge support system around you, and I hope you do, that's amazing, that's always still helpful, there is still something about finding people who you can relate to on a different spectrum in terms of grief. The dinner party is a great place to start. And if you're sitting here thinking, Gianna, I don't really have anybody that I can connect with, please, by all means, DM me on Instagram at so sorry with Gianna or email me giannademedio at gmail.com. I have a plethora of resources to be able to share. So listen here from Carla Fernandez on how she used her grief to really launch into this amazing business that is garnering like $100,000 worth of fundraising every year because the idea is so amazing. So many people want to support it. And she took her grief, spun it into something amazing. A little bit of what I'm trying to do here. So happy that you are on this ride with me. I love you so much. Enjoy the episode. Good morning. I mean, you're like, you're, you're well into your day. 
Yeah. Where are you again in Colorado? I am in Joshua Tree in Southern California. Gotcha. Gotcha. I live between here and New York. Did you guys move to Florida? Are you settled? Yeah, we're here in Florida. We are here for three months. My mom lives down here, which is great. Um, Oh, awesome. So she's actually here watching my baby right now, which is super fun that they get to spend a lot of time together too. But then we're kind of just living that vagabond life, I guess. We are going to go to California for another month. We were there in October in Laguna Beach and we absolutely loved it. We're going to do that again. And then we have a home in the Jersey Shore. We're going to live there for like three to four months and then figure it out. What's your split? How much time do you spend in one area and the other? So the plan now is that we'll spend like three or four months a year in Joshua Tree in the winter. Like we're going to be here January through March this year. Yeah. nice. And then the rest of the year will be in New York, but we've set up both of our houses to be Airbnbs when we're not there. Cool. So we kind of like, there's like a third option of like, what if we rent both of our places out and we're like somewhere, somewhere else? else. <laughs> yeah. So we're starting to kind of explore that. Possibilities are endless. Do you have family in both locations? You said my partner's family is in New York and I have some, not my immediate family, but some extended family there. And then in Joshua tree, my brother recently bought a house here too. I'm excited to talk with you and I thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. And I love what you've been doing and you were such a good fundraiser. Oh my God, crushed it. So thank you. Yeah. So it was fun to work with you and and your team and get to know you guys a little bit closer. I mean, I, I just think the world of the dinner party, I mean, it certainly helped me. And like now to have this face to a name to see Carla, who really started this whole thing and got this all off the ground and to see where it is now, I'm excited to hear your story. So it all started with the loss of your father, Jose, right? Yep. Yeah. I was, I was in college. I was a senior in college when my dad got diagnosed with cancer, with brain cancer. The first sort of six months, we were really hopeful that he was going to beat it and, you know, had our fingers crossed as you do when you're facing terminal illness. And then the next six months, we started to realize that he actually wasn't going to beat it and the clinical trials weren't working. And in that time I graduated from college and I ended up moving in with him and was one of his caretakers through the end of his life, which was an intense thing to do as a 21 year old. And also like a huge honor and gift to be able to be in the room with him as he was preparing his grand exit. And and around that, I like that. Yeah. It's kind of how it felt. He died on new year's day um, of 2010. So it was like, Mm a new decade. And there were all these fireworks. We were in San Francisco at the time, but there were all these fireworks going off the city the hours before he died. And it kind of had this like very, like we always think about death as being only bad, ugly, terrible, something that we should avoid. But I feel like in the way my dad ended up dying, there was a lot of elegance and grace. And it really showed me that the cultural tones around death and loss and grief are so limited. Um, Yes. And I felt that way when I started to go to traditional grief groups and support groups and very much felt like a lot of those places were kind of cold and institutional and, Mm -hmm. and many traditional grief groups save people's lives 1000%. But I think because I was young at the time, they were filled with people who were losing their parents at a more kind of natural quote unquote natural age. So it was rooms of women and men in their fifties and sixties dealing with the death of their parents who were in their eighties and nineties. And I felt even more isolated in conversation with them. And there were some young adult grief groups. I tried one out and I remember it kind of feeling like we were kind of treated like kids. Yeah. There was like a teddy bear passed around as like a talking stick. And I remember Mm -hmm. being like, whatever I just went through makes me feel like a grown ass person. And we don't need to have 
toys in the room. And now looking back, what I'm what what was happening then was an observation around the fact that the world of grief support has been catered traditionally to people who are losing relatives, you know, later in life. And there's amazing resources for grieving kids like Camp Aaron and Comfort Zone Camp. And there's a lot of different programs to meet kids where they're at when they're grieving. But our sort of age bracket of like no longer a kid, but not yet maybe like in a family of our own or 45 plus, like there was sort of this void in resources and support systems and communities for that kind of like in between. My dad loved wine and food. It was the business he worked in. It was really the lifeblood of my family. Oh, I think and our dads would be friends. That were some of his favorite things too. <laughs> oh my gosh. Maybe they're hanging out, yeah. drinking a bottle of wine. So I remember going to a grief group and being like, this is cool, but it's kind of cold and it's a circle of metal folding chairs around a tissue box. And mm-hmm. can we like liven this up a little? Spruce like, this up a bit. Yeah. Can we make this feel a little bit more like enjoyable? Like, does it have to feel like hard work? Around that time, I met a woman named Lennon Flowers who was a coworker and we confided in one another that we'd both lost a parent to cancer. Her mom, Sue, had died of lung cancer a few years before. And I invited her over one night because it was never going to be the right time or space at our office at the magazine where we worked to like get into it. Right. So I invited her over to dinner and I invited a few other people who I had connected with or heard about who had also lost someone who were in this early twenties age range. And they all came over for dinner and it felt like this kind of like nerve wracking blind date social experiment Mm -hmm. because none of us had ever done anything like that before. And once everybody kind of sat down to dinner, it was a potluck. I toasted to my dad and to all of the other people around the table, the sort of memory of whoever brought them there that night. And it was this amazing sort of rush of conversation where we had all been holding these questions and stories and ideas and concerns that we hadn't had anyone to talk to about them. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we had our existing, our living family members, but in many cases, the dynamics had changed or it was too intimate to, to be real about how we were doing. There's power in like the slight anonymity of sitting down with a group of strangers. Yeah, Definitely. And the other thing that was surprising to me was like, we talked about how everybody died, you know, the cancer, the accident, but very quickly the conversation moved to this place of like, okay, well, what now? Like, how are you dealing with work deadlines when you're having a really bad wave of grief? Or what do you say on a first date when someone is like, what do your Mm -hmm. parents do? And all this like very practical day-to-day stuff that like I had never read about in a book or my therapist had never warned me about or hadn't come up in in the traditional grief groups. Right. Because it may not necessarily have to do with feelings and emotions and how you're coping. But like you said, it's the practicality of some of these situations. And how do you weave that into the grief that you have and into your life? Yes. Is is what was missing from out there in the world to help people of our age. So I'm interested when you held this group, did you think that this was going to be something that you were going to do regularly, or you thought, let's just have everybody over for dinner and see what happens from here. And then it kind of spawned into something bigger. So the first night was very much like, let's see what happens. I hope this isn't an awkward disaster. Right. By the end of the evening, everyone was looking around being like, when can we do this again? And one of the women ended up like spending the night because she'd had too much to drink and we'd only met (laughs) A couple of times before, but I was like, sleep in my bed. Yeah. There was this immediate, like, packed feeling. Yeah. 
this like yeah. sisterhood. It was all happened to be all women at that first dinner. So we started to meet once a month, more or less, and meet at different people's houses. And a couple months in Lennon, who I mentioned, and I kind of looked at each other and we're like, this is, a, I think this is a bigger idea than just us five. Like we can't be the only people in Los Angeles, in California, in America, who are longing for this kind of space. Mm -hmm. But we didn't like launch a website at that point or try to like do a thing. What started to happen was through word of mouth, people started to reach out to us and ask us if they could come or they lived in a different city. Could they start one where they live or therapists are our therapists who we would talk to about this like cool, new, weird, dead parents, underground supper club thing we were starting. Yeah. Therapists would recommend other clients to us. So cool. Lennon and I kind of sat back at some point and were like, okay, this is, this idea wants to exist in the world. And how do we lay the tracks yeah. to allow it to, to arrive? And not long after Lennon was like, fuck it. And quit the job that we had together where we had met and yeah, she's, she's our executive director and she's really been the one that's like been the, the army general since 2012 being like, how do we turn this from an idea or like one or two tables to actually a network of tables that can, that can grow and scale. And we have now about 13,000 people who have signed up for a dinner before the pandemic. We had tables in about a hundred cities across the U S and amazing. During the pandemic, I'll have to remind myself of the latest numbers, but I think we're at about like 450 tables, many of which about 68 of which currently are affinity spaces. So for people who want to sit with people who have also lost someone to suicide or who are also people okay. of color, we found that there's real power in that kind of specificity. That's sure. something that we have leaned into this last couple did of years. You, did you see your numbers grow a lot over the pandemic? It was an interesting moment for sure. And during the pandemic, when it hit, we had a real holy shit moment because we realized that the world was waking up to the fact that grief is real and we need community and grief. This sort of drum that we've been beating for the last five plus years was sort of like coming to the surface finally to mix metaphors. And at the same time, the kind of catch 22 was like, but the thing that we've created is getting people in person, together, indoors in person. Mm -hmm. together in a stranger's house to build relationships that quickly don't feel like you're sitting with strangers. But we watched our community pretty much immediately start meeting virtually and tables were like taking to Zoom. Mm -hmm. So we kind of followed their lead and we're like, okay, maybe we always had a hypothesis that this kind of this power of connection couldn't happen on zoom. And that if you couldn't like refill someone's wine glass or like right. pass a bowl around the table, that it would just be like an awkward internet conversation. It certainly is stronger in person. And I think if that is a way that you can do it, definitely go that way. But when the only option is to do it over zoom or nothing, choose zoom all day long. Because yes. to still be able to have that bond and that connection is, I mean, bar none better than nothing. And what's been kind of surprising is that we're getting some data back that is showing how powerful the virtual table spaces have been because people are meeting more frequently on virtual mm -hmm. tables. There's a lower flake rate, which is what we call when someone like signs up for a table, but then like the hour before they're like, I can't, I'm in Brooklyn and my table's in Chelsea and like the subway train is broken and mm -hmm. I can't make it or whatever million excuses prevent someone from like showing up at someone's door, but yeah. the, the barrier to entry is so much lower when you're just like in your pajamas on your couch, clicking a link. Right. And the other thing that's been powerful about virtual tables is that it's allowing us to get the folks who have been 
in rural places where we're probably never going to have like a quorum of 15 folks to create a table around or people who've been sitting on a wait list for a long time, it means that they can finally get matched to their table and find their people because we're no longer restricted by geography. Right. So there's been all of these amazing kind of upsides or silver yeah, linings. Little silver to, linings. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to dive in a little bit to how you were able to parlay this into something that not only just helped your grief and Lennon's grief, but you are literally helping an entire nation and their grief. And it's incredible. And I commend you for it. And I want to know how that has impacted your ability to cope with your dad's loss. Because mm -hmm. I, I know the way that I feel like every time that I get a message from someone that's like, oh my God, thank you for making this podcast. It's helping me so much. It's like another band-aid on the pain that I feel like in being able to help somebody else is, is helping myself. So I'm mm. wondering if you have a similar experience. Yeah, it's such a good question. I appreciate you asking it. It's been a roller coaster in the sense that initially this was 1000% what I needed for my healing. I needed to sit down with people who didn't feel like clinicians or like random people in a support group. I needed to sit down with people who likely could become my friends and who I could build emotional relational connections with. Essentially it was like what I craved for my own healing didn't exist. So I mm -hmm. made it up. Made it. Yeah. There was definitely a dark period personally when we were like, this was no longer about me healing the grief of my dad, but it was about convincing the world that this thing needed to exist and having to talk about my dad, but then follow it with a fundraising ask or go to dinner oh, parties uh -huh. to, you know, launching a dinner in a new city in the very early days, basically wherever Lennon and I would go, we would see who we could round up on Facebook and help kind of seed dinners. But it meant that there were a couple of years where the conversations that I was having around the table felt like a rehearsed spiel, as opposed mm -hmm. to like this super deeply intimate personal story. And it was an important phase because in that moment I was learning like, oh, my grief is changing. Mm -hmm. I actually have verbally processed this. I now have a group of friends from my first dinner party table who I can turn to when I need to like get something out and like go out dancing or when I've had a bad day and I just need someone to talk to. It was hard in the, in the middle times where we were standing up the organization and our Lennon and my, both of our personal stories were so tied to the formation of this organization. But I feel like we kind of, we turned a corner when we started to get more kind of external validation from the world when participants were like, holy shit, this is amazing. This is exactly what I needed. And we could mm -hmm. turn the spotlight away from our stories and our parents and recede into the background ever so slightly and yeah. have this be about the stories of new tables that we're forming and the new staff members that we're joining. And it's interesting because Lennon and I really don't talk about our own grief stories all that much anymore. Sometimes when we're doing interviews like this, we do. Neither of us are active participants at like a table currently. And mm -hmm. I don't think either of us would say that we're actively, we're not acutely grieving. And yet our friend circles, like the people who we hang out with on the weekends are people who we met at those initial tables or that who we met through the community. And it is, I think every now and then I will sit back and be like, oh man, you know, who would love this is my dad. Like he would be ask, so stoked. What do yeah. you think he would say about it? And to look at how far you've come with it. 
I'm sure he, I'm sure he would be so geeking out at what we've created. And I bet there would be times where he would be like, chill out. You're intense. Like, you know, this, <laughs> as anyone who's like started an organization knows it requires like the nights and the weekends and yeah, that entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there, there definitely have been periods where I'm like taking my personal heartbreak and funneling it into like a late night working and that has worked for me. So I'm pretty sure he probably would have told me to like chill out a little bit over the years and not be like the most. And I'm positive that like looking at the kind of network that we've built and the things we're learning actively and how we're helping people turn their heartbreak into a place for deep friendship and connection. I'm, I feel like he would have his glass raised to cheers at all. Oh, that's beautiful. There's something that you said. I want to go back to about how sometimes it can feel like a spiel when you're talking about your grief story. And I totally can resonate with that because there are times if I think maybe I've become so what's, what's the word I'm looking for here, but like you've become so almost immune or so almost numb to, to this, the story of it, because we are in positions where we have said it so many times that I, I worry sometimes I'm like, do people think that I don't care? Do mm. people think that I am not emotionally attached to this because of the way that I'm able to talk about this as the way I can talk about what I just had for lunch almost sometimes. But I think, and what I'm realizing now as I'm having this conversation with you is that you are in such a good place with being able to even talk about the fact that he is gone. And that is the foundation of being okay with everything else in this weird, wicked world that grief has us. And that is what others are striving to achieve. Mm -hmm. So I hope that it's these other people that are coming to the dinner party and these other people that are coming to my podcast are are saying, okay, look at what w- we might be able to achieve once we have the support of the dinner party and the people in this community. And it is possible to get to a point like this. 1,000. And, and not necessarily look at it. I think, you know, our brain always wants to tell us the, the, the worst of things. And it, so instead I'm telling myself like, oh, people are looking at us thinking, oh my God, they're emotionless. They don't care. Mm. They, how could they, you know, they're the terrible daughters or whatever. But uh, realistically, if we're talking about it, I think that maybe I would hope that, that people, it's, it's an inspiring type of thing, you know? Yeah. It's such a good question in this like tender in between, you know, early on in the dinner party, when I knew that we were onto something was when members of the original tables were like, I can finally talk to my coworkers about the fact that like, no, I'm not going home for mother's day because my mother is dead without bursting into bursting tears. Into tears. Yep. And like, I actually now use the fact that like, oh, I can't come to your birthday party on Thursday night because I have this dinner party group. The dinner party was giving people like a way to introduce their lost stories to other mm-hmm. people in their lives not starting with the story of the death or the grief, but starting with the story of kind of like community and connection. And like, I got other plans. You can't sit with us to quote mean girls. Yes. Yes. Um, You, you gave the community an outlet and a place to be able to openly talk about it, to be able to get to a point to feel comfort. And quite frankly, Mm -hmm. that is not there without the dinner party. That was really a turning point for Mm -hmm. me. I mean, I I will remember that night like forever. Just I came home feeling like I had sparklers shot up my ass. I mean, honestly, I was, there was like (laughs) energy just like spitting out of every, every part of my body because I Mm -hmm. felt finally like, holy shit, there's something here that I can connect to. There's people that understand me. There's, there's more to this than just, oh my God, it happened. Now you're stuck in this dark hole. 
And it, it, it really invigorated me. Honestly, even do this. Awesome. And, and it, it's, it's really cool to, to, to be sitting here talking with you because it, it really was like a start of me getting to a comfortable place with everything. So thank you to you and Lennon for oh everything gosh. that you've done. What do you think was going on at your table? Like, was there any special sauce? Like every table is its own unique snowflake of people yeah. and stories and time and place. Like what about your table? Do you think gave you the sparklers up your ass feeling, which I <laughs> am obsessed with? <laughs> I think there was probably about nine people, eight or nine people there that day. There were so many people from different backgrounds, different, you know, everybody looked different. Everybody talked different. Everybody had different jobs, but we, and we all lost different people. But I think that feeling of, I don't know any of you. And we're just so comfortable sitting here sharing these deep emotions. And I don't maybe need to spend as much energy talking about this stuff because you guys already know. Mm. Oh, and yeah. I think that was, was really it. Like how it's like, you know, if a sentence normally required 12 words, you could say three and then you were done because everybody else got it. And then they would know how to explain from there. And just in a time of my life where I needed so much fucking energy to do anything, yeah. I suddenly was in a, a room with people that I didn't need to exert that much energy because they were all right there with me. Mm, yes. 1000%. Yeah. I'm rem as you're talking, I'm remembering the feelings of being around my first table and being like, Oh, I can just say it's father's day. Yeah. Or like my brother is X, Y, or Z, or my stepmom is A, B, or C, and mm -hmm. they would not, and I wouldn't have to say anything else. Yeah. Or if I did share more, or if they did dig in, there was like always a feeling of no judgment and like mm -hmm. no shame and, and real talk from people yeah. who weren't just like, I'm so sorry, this must be hard, but like, One let me tell you what happened over here. Percent. One yeah. million percent. I think for me too, I am an only child. I felt very alone in my grief. There was no other person that was grieving my father in that way. And having this community felt like all of a sudden I was a part of other children that were grieving a parent, you know, granted it, it's yeah. not always the same, but somebody like you said that I could say, oh, it's father's day. And then they got it because I didn't have that in my mm -hmm. life. Yep. And even for people who do, like I have two siblings, Lennon has a brother and we always joke Lennon's brothers. He's amazing. Ben shout out Ben flowers. But early on, he was like, I'm not coming to your dinners. Like, I don't want to talk to people about this. He is a yogi and has like a very, very deep yoga movement practice that has been his way of processing their mom's death. And, you know, I think about my siblings who both attended at some point or the other, but you know, my younger sibling has a Dungeons and Dragons table that they play at. And that's like their form of community and connection where they can process their grief. And nice. my brother spent two years, like going to festivals and dancing his face off. And like, I'm pretty sure that's where he processed his grief. So right. at the end of the day, we're like, this isn't for everyone. We know that intimately. And yet for the people who it's like, a yes for it's a big, it's a big yes. And it's oftentimes a kind of a gateway drug to other modalities of healing that can be helpful. Totally. Yeah, totally agree. The other question you asked though was yes, let's create spaces where we can feel normalized and telling our stories, but how do we also not have it feel rote or like we're on autopilot? Mm -hmm. And one thing I love that we kind of figured out early on is that if we have people answer the question, you know, who are you? Why are you here? Who, who brings you to the table? And where are you at with your grief right now? 
It forces people to not just say the replay of the cancer or the accident or whatever happened, but actually be like, I, it's my dad's birthday next week. And I'm like feeling feelings about it. And I hadn't thought about that yet, but like bringing people into the present tense of, and we had an early dinner party or Lindsay Blue Smith, who is epic. She lives in Portland. She really called us out early on or called us in, I guess we now say of like, this shouldn't be a place to say the thing that we've said a million times before, but like, where are you at right now? Mm-hmm. Like what, what happened today at work or what's coming up in the next week? And let's start there. And, and that's really always get into it and go into some of those deeper layers. Yeah. But like what's happening in the present tense. So that's, that's been a good trick for us. The recent fundraiser that the dinner party had, how did it go? What is the money going towards? Were there any new connections or any fun facts that you yeah. want to share from the fundraiser in general? Yeah. Thank you for asking about it. Every year we have, since we came out of the closet as a nonprofit has ended or kicked off, depending on how you see it with a crowdfunding campaign. And the first year we set like a $10,000 goal and we were all kinds of nervous about it. And we got to 15 and we were freaking out and slowly over the years, it's incrementally, the goal's gotten higher as our team has grown and as mm-hmm. the sort of thoughtfulness of the program has grown and as our annual budget grows, which is now currently at about $700,000 a year is how much mm-hmm. it costs to run the dinner party, which may be boring to some people, but I really love to get into the nitty gritty of like, what does it take to really run something like this? And mm-hmm. from the outside looking in, we often hear from people like, what? I thought it was run by volunteers and what do you guys need money for? But, you know, we're a staff of 10 people who are working really around the clock to help make sure that our hosts are available and trained and that dinner partiers feel supported and that there are other kind of programs and things that people can plug into. And so this year's fundraising campaign, we went into it being like, it'd be great if we could raise hundred K, which felt like this kind of big, scary goal, especially in a time where a lot of organizations are struggling for financial support. There's Mm -hmm. so many things that one might donate money to these days. And then we ended up cruising like way past our goal. And we end the final tally when we closed the doors on the 15th was 128. Yeah. Amazing. That was, that was a big win. And basically what it means is that we can start this year with an exhale and really get clear and strategic about how we're spending our time. And, and another thing we've kind of ramped into the last couple of years is inviting dinner partiers who've had positive experiences and who want to help us make it happen and keep it going and, you know, keep this thing alive. So to speak, we've had dinner partiers and community members help us with that fundraising because Lennon and I have hit up the same people every year for a long time. And it's so helpful to have other people who've been moved by this work, you know, send the email to their communities and, it can be for many people a really validating. I don't, I wonder how it was for you, but for me and for others that I've talked to, it's been a way of similarly talking about our loss experiences and mm-hmm. bringing up the fact that like, Hey, I'm still here. I'm still grieving. This is the memory of the person who brings me to the table. I have found something that works for me and I want it to be around for other people when they need it too. Yeah. Yeah. How was it for you to be a fundraiser this year? I loved it. I want to say thank you for opening it up to the dinner partiers because yeah, those of us who had a positive experience, I mean, I would do anything to, to get the, this name out there for people to know that it's available for people to know that this resource is here for them to go to, to have something to, to kind of wrap their, their grief around and, and be able to sit and feel okay for a little bit. And 
for me, my mother-in-law who also passed was an incredibly philanthropic person. I mean, involved in as many charities as you could possibly think of posthumously was given so many awards through all of them. My husband even was like, all right, I'm done. Like, I don't want to go to any more of these. I can't sit here and talk about my dead mom like this anymore. But she was an incredible woman being able to fundraise like this for the dinner party. I really felt, you know, as much as it is in memory of my dad, I really felt it was in memory of her too. It was mm. something that made me feel very close to her. It was something I knew she would have been very proud of. And again, like I said in the beginning, I was just so happy to be able to continue to put the word out there. Somebody saw it on this social post that the dinner party is available, you know, if they donated fabulous, if they didn't donate, but they at least found out about it and they clicked on it and they signed up like great. So I was just happy to continue to get the word out. Anything that I can, I'm just so passionate about this grief world in general to just do anything I can to, to help anybody with it. So again, mm -hmm. I, I thank you and the dinner party for, for giving me the opportunity to do so. So what's next for the dinner party? What are some of your goals for this year? We had some really big changes happen in the last year, all really positive steps forward for us. One, we had, this is sort of nonprofit wonkiness, but we had been a fiscally sponsored organization, which basically meant we were living under the umbrella of a other bigger nonprofit called Community Partners. And December 1st, 2021, we kind of like moved out of our parents' house and now have our own place, so to speak. <laughs> so we have our own sort of official 501c, which means that we are, have been, it's been a lot of behind the scenes time and energy setting up the infrastructure to support a team of 10, supporting a community of 13,000. So that sort of not the glamorous work, but is happening. We also had a, got to a really big milestone in the fall, which is for a long time, we've known that the systems that we've been using to match dinner partiers to tables what, had a ceiling because we were hand matching people. Someone on our team would be assigned to a region. They would read all the applications that came in from Philly, let's say, you know, there'd maybe be 50 applicants and the job of our community manager would be, we think these 12 people would go good together and these 12 people would go good together. And we were essentially playing matchmaker, which was amazing because we were able to be really thoughtful about connections and form, you know, tables and places where like everybody around the table was a comedy writer or everybody around the table loved hiking and were connected, not just by their loss stories, but by their interests. But it became really clear to us that we were always going to be limited in our growth if we were doing that mm -hmm. bottlenecking. So we've spent the last couple of years trying to figure out what is a technological solution to that question. And we've launched a new platform in partnership with an organization called One Table that will allow folks who hear about the dinner party to come to our website, set up a profile, click through to like a marketplace of tables. And it's they'll like be Tinder able for the dinner party. We're finally getting closer to our Tinder dreams. Love it. So you'll be able to like read a host's bio, kind of like scope around whether in, you want to be in an in-person table when we open in-person tables again, or a virtual table and like pick your host. And then if say you end up moving or like the vibe isn't there with the, with that table, you can go back into this platform and try a different table. We even have people who are like signing up for multiple this year, our real kind of like strategic focus is going to be, how do we continue to improve the quality of experience for people who are a part of our community? Because, mm -hmm. you know, we hear from people like you who have the sort of like oh my gosh, I finally feel seen and heard. We also have people who sign up, but then kind of like get nervous and don't show, or they come to the first dinner and like, maybe they don't click with their table. We're really interested in like, how do we continue to improve our systems and 
the safety nets within them to really catch people and make sure they feel seen and heard. We're currently matching. People can sign up for location specific tables with the hope that soon they will go from virtual to in-person. So the other big focus for this year is going to be host recruitment and making sure that we have enough open tables in the kind of key cities that we're Mm -hmm. currently serving, like the Austins and the Denvers and the Miamis and the New Yorks and the LAs and these sort of like centers of gravity for our community. Yeah. So if you're listening from those cities, stay tuned. We need you as a host. Totally. Post recruitment (laughs) coming soon. Looking at grief overall, stepping back from just the dinner party right now, what should be next for grief? Hmm. If there is something that you could totally overhaul about the grieving process or response to grief or the way that our culture handles it, what would you target? My like 100% answer on this is changes to federal and state labor law around how bereaved people are respected, get time off, get the care they need within workplaces. This has become a real personal passion point. And we've been doing some interesting work with companies and nonprofits around how to create grief ready cultures. At the end of the day, say I go to my job 40 hours a week. And then on Friday night, I get to go to my dinner party and there's like two hours of amazing connection. But the 40 hours at my week, I didn't get any time off for bereavement leave. My boss didn't take any work off my plate. I don't feel like I can be real about what's going on in my life. Yes, the dinner party is important, but also like what if the workplaces that we were going to had a deep sense of like clarity, literacy around how to support a grieving person. Mm -hmm. I feel like it would really transform the experience for so many people. There's an amazing organization called Evermore that's really working on this and they're lobbying Capitol Hill to try to get bereavement leave as a mandatory right. There is currently zero days required by the federal government for companies to provide for their employees. Some states have kicked in with three mandatory days, for example, but Mm -hmm. what that ends up meaning is that someone can go to work, tell their boss that their child was killed, for example, think about the worst case scenario, right? and they can not show up to work the next day, and they can be legally fired because they don't have any protection. It's not sexy or glamorous. It's not like, here's some cool new grief retreat we might all go to, or mm. like, here's some new product or whatever, but it's really yeah, but like- it's real life. Yeah, it's looking at like, what are the ways in which our- denying of grief and our discomfort, addressing it, talking about it, normalizing it. What are the ways that that sort of toxic energy has infused itself in our culture and is keeping people quiet about their grief mm-hmm. or keeping people feeling like they don't have the right to talk about it, or they don't have the right to the right to take time to heal or to my grandmother died last year at 95. Mm-hmm. I was stoked for her. She was like, lived a long life and was ready to go, <laughs> but we had to, we had to like do the work of you know, emptying a home and yes. Right. And I was, and even, you know, and I'm like, Oh, this is insane to think that somebody could care for this phase of someone's life and be back to work on a Tuesday. Yeah. Like it's so much logistics. It's so much time, let alone like the emotional, spiritual, mental impacts Mm -hmm. of grief of which there are many. So that's like my personal soapbox that I get on. And I'm really, really glad that people are starting to talk about it and work on it. And we've been going into organizations of all different sizes and sectors like hospitals and for-profits and social service agencies and starting to like broach the conversation. Yeah. But there's a long way to go. Yeah. I hear you. And I think it's an incredible soapbox to stand on because it is such an important issue. And if there's any way 
that I can help, please let me know. If there's any resources that are important for me to include in the show notes to give to listeners to get them on board, please share, let me know. Anything else that that you want to add that we didn't necessarily touch on today? I would just say, A, thank you for what you're doing. You know, I think you're like this walking embodiment of how do we go from feeling alone and isolated in our grief to finding people who get us to then being in a place where we can actually help make other people feel less alone. And this podcast is such an embodiment of that. So yay, congratulations and thanks for what you're doing. And I think anyone who's listening, thedinnerparty.org is our website where all of the information is whether you're looking to join a virtual table, what we also launched a buddy system program. If you're like, I don't want to coordinate with a group of 10, can I just get like a person? And we're still hand matching those people. So there's like a lot of kismet happening because we can really take the time to find the right buddy Mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. And we also have a resource page on our website. If you are listening to this and want to know how to be a better grief ally or looking for books to read, and maybe you're not ready to join a table or get matched to a buddy, but you want to sort of join the club in other, other ways. We've got a lot of other, other good resources and things on our site. So come, come hang out. Absolutely. Yes. Dinnerparty.org. Make sure you check it out. You will not regret it. I promise you, Carla Fernandez. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for showing us what it truly is to help tackle grief and bring this amazing support system to everybody across the country. And you're making us proud that are in the grief community and you are surely making Jose proud. So cheers to you with our next glass of wine. (laughs) Appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Head over to Instagram to follow more at so sorry with Gianna. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave that five-star review. I would love you for it. More to come on this season of So Sorry for Your Loss. So stay tuned.